Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On this week's show, we are going to talk government control of the energy industry, on the premise of catastrophic global warming. And particularly, we're going to focus on the issue called cap and trade. Now, you've probably heard that term a lot. There's been legislation in Europe. There was proposed legislation in the United States that thankfully did not pass. Uh, But there's a lot of confusion about what this means and what it is, what it isn't. And uh, there's a lot of ignorance, I think, or or lack of awareness about what the history of these policies are and and when they've been implemented, what they've done. So this week, we've got an expert on cap and trade and more broadly, an expert on government regulation of industry, Myron Ebel of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And Myron will talk to us uh, primarily about Europe's experience with cap and trade and what, what we can learn from that. Then we'll talk about America's experience. And we'll also talk about the calls now, now that cap and trade is a bit out of fashion, for a carbon, so-called carbon tax, or more accurately, carbon dioxide tax. And we'll see uh, how that's similar to cap and trade, how that differs from cap and trade, and uh, what we should think about it and what we should do about it. So I hope you enjoy the interview, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Myron E. Bell of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Myron, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so let's let's jump right in. There's been a bunch of articles lately, um, including in, in uh, from sources such as the Washington Post editorial board, which you wouldn't expect to be critical of green energy uh, initiatives, uh, proclaiming the downfall of cap and trade in Europe. Could you give us uh, at first just an overview of this story? The uh, the cap and trade system was an insisted upon by the United States in the Kyoto Protocol negotiations in 1997, and it was resisted by the European Union. And when the Kyoto Protocol was finally uh, agreed to at the last minute in December 1997, and Al Gore had to fly to Kyoto to sell out the U.S. position, uh, the European Union agreed that cap and trade should be one of the mechanisms used to reduce emissions. And then the United States uh, never ratified the Kyoto Protocol. The Senate never voted on it. And and if they had, it would have been defeated. And the European Union decided that the best way to reduce emissions was to institute a cap-and-trade system, which is simply that you put a limit on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, primarily uh, carbon dioxide emissions from burning coal oil and natural gas. Every year, you reduce that limit, and you allow the... Uh, sources of emissions, that is the people who burn coal, oil, and natural gas to produce energy, you allow them to uh, trade credits if they don't, if they're producing more than their quota allows. So that if someone else has found a cheaper way to reduce emissions, or in fact has gone out of business, 
that person can sell his uh, ration coupons, let's call them, to somebody who needs them because their business is growing and they're, they're using more energy. And so the European Union uh, instituted this uh, a number of years ago. It's called the ETS, or Emissions Trading Scheme. And um, it's never worked. Uh, and uh, it's never worked for many of the reasons that uh, people like me said it wouldn't work. And uh, they have now uh, more or less admitted that it's not working and, it, and they're trying to save it, I think, so far unsuccessfully. Um, so jumping into the idea of, of it not working, uh, it seems like it's an important aspect that the, the, the end game, at least in, in declaration, is to reduce uh, CO2 emissions, which you know, means to reduce the uh, use of carbon-based energy. What what exactly isn't working? Is it that you know are people, are people resisting? Uh, you know what what's going wrong there? Because it seems you know straightforwardly you could force people to use less energy, which would be which would work, you know, to undercut life, but would work on its own terms. Yes, I mean it. It sounds plausible, but the pro- it's it, it's part of the problem that all centrally planned economic policies have, which is. In order to set next year's emissions limits, you have to know what the economy is going to do next year. And the European Union uh, did not forecast in its planning that their economy was going to collapse and was going to be stagnant for a number of years. And so consequently, uh, they have a a lot more ration coupons on the market that are needed. And uh, because, in fact, energy consumption has gone down just as a result of economic uh, collapse, uh, not as a result of this uh, ETS system. So there are a lot of ration coupons on the market, and consequently they don't have any value because nobody really needs to buy very many of them to keep in business. The other problem, and this has bedeviled the, uh, the ETS since it was started, and this is something that we have harped on uh, for years, is that it's it's a, uh, a system that is really open to manipulation and gaming the system, and uh, it's, it's open to con men, essentially. And there's been quite a lot of that in, in the European Union, uh, and some people have gotten very wealthy by uh, driving up the price of the ration coupons and then collapsing the price and then starting it all over again. So there... And there are other ways you can game the system as well that become quite complicated. But by and large, it's really open to, uh, you know, Ken Lay of Enron was the biggest promoter uh, of, of cap and trade. And in fact, uh, before Enron collapsed in uh, uh, scandal and bankruptcy, uh, they saw that cap and trade as their biggest growth area. And in fact, they had signed a contract with uh, at least the British government and maybe the European Union to to run their uh, EPS when it was created. So, it, it, con men sort of uh, are magnetically drawn to this kind of thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I might push back on that in the sense of if if one stipulated that catastrophic global warming uh, was a reality, which I don't believe there's evidence for. Uh, I mean, there'd be a question of what sort of uh, you know what sort of policy to have, and I guess it, it seems like theoretically, you know, that kind of thing would make more sense than say a tax on uh, on carbon dioxide, and, and would perhaps be uh, less painful. Um, and I, I guess sometimes I hear conservatives criticizing this, and what they're what they seem to be criticizing is a market uh, 
uh, phenomenon. I mean, is is like you know speculators making money? So of course people would make money, but as any speculators do by making a market more efficient. What's the difference between these speculators and you know the speculators who make normal financial markets productive? Uh, it's a government created market. It's it's market socialism, not not a market. Uh, the the, the ultimate problem with it is that it's open that the government keeps uh, doesn't set up a market and let then let people uh, uh, buy and sell in it it continually changes the rules it continually favors one group of people over another it's it's the classic crony capitalist uh, institution and by crony capitalism I mean people who uh, run businesses that are dependent upon government uh, uh, handouts and government uh, favors or, or changes to regulations in order to to um, exist. And you you see, if you look at the companies uh, in the United States, I'm more familiar with. So let me talk about them. If you look at the companies that favor. They are all companies that are extremely expert and spend most of their time in Washington trying to bend the rules in their favor. So you've got General Electric, uh, Chemical, uh, companies like that that uh, that really uh, in General Electric has a lot of businesses. So I don't want to I don't want to sort of describe them all the same. But a lot of General Electric's businesses are really dependent upon. Uh, on government, and so you have um, you see a lot of them in Washington D.C. And whereas a lot of companies, you know, that that become wildly successful, you know, try to stay out of Washington as much as possible. But there are certain companies that just spend a lot of time here. Cap and trade is really uh, I don't want to, maybe magnetic is not the right term. It's it's like uh, honey uh, to uh, uh, those those. Uh, Types of critters that that are drawn to honey. I mean, it, it's it's just very hard to resist. And um, so I, I do I don't think we're talking about a market mechanism here. I think we're talking about a market socialist mechanism, which is quite a different thing. And um, the the kinds of um, the, the kinds of rules that were being written in the United States uh, for the Waxman Markey Bill, uh, every company that was interested in this or affected by it was coming to town to try to get the rules changed just a little bit so it would benefit their company rather than someone else's company. And in fact, Jim Rogers of Duke Energy said as much uh, at one point. He said, well, I don't mean that kind of cap and trade. I mean the kind of cap and trade that will benefit my company. <laughs> so I, I think, uh, and you know, this is all at the expense of consumers. That's the other thing. This uh, uh, Markets are, are ultimately driven and and controlled by consumers who want to buy things and uh, or don't want to buy things. Cap and trade is really designed to uh, raise the cost of energy for consumers and building the political support for it uh, by rewarding certain companies. And and but ultimately, all the costs are passed on to energy users. That is consumers. Right. It's it's it's, it's a scam essentially. Um, so going back to the example of, of Europe, I mean, you mentioned that basically they had a decline in prosperity and standard of living, and therefore that that decreased their their energy demand, and therefore, in a sense, they're quote unquote complying. 
I mean, what what does that say about the very nature of this scheme and the the whole UN goal of an eighty percent reduction? Essentially, the only way to comply with it is by drastically reducing your standard of living. And had Europe had a new, innovative, productive boom, then you know only then would they be you know violating uh, the amount of CO two you're supposed to emit. Uh, Alex, I think that if if you do believe that global warming is a problem that we have to address, then the kinds of things that have been put forward by the global warming alarmists can't possibly work uh, because they are all based on the idea that we have to consume less and use less energy and use more expensive forms of energy. Now, in the United States, we're a wealthy country. We can put up with a certain amount of um, of annoyance and harassment by these people and we can reduce our standards of living a little and nobody well not too many people notice very much but the world is energy poor not energy rich uh, there are uh, well over a billion people in the world who don't have access to any electricity and there are quite a few more who only have access to enough to uh, you know part of the time have a light bulb or a, a hot plate or something like that so the, basically, I don't think the people of the world are going to put up with uh, reducing uh, the amount of energy in the world when we need more of it and when the alternatives to coal, oil, and natural gas, uh, virtually all of them, with, with one or two exceptions like hydropower, which is, is no longer politically correct even though it doesn't have greenhouse gas emissions, all the alternatives are more expensive and don't produce much energy. So. It seems to me that if you really do believe global warming is a problem, uh, there is one uh, way to reduce emissions, and that's through letting letting the market loose to innovate. Uh, I, I think that a lot of what's been done has actually slowed down the rate of innovation by intruding government into uh, and and creating a class of welfare dependence in the corporate community. I mean, I think wind power, for example, is is a pretty much a dead end, but let's take uh, solar power. Uh, solar power gets a very large subsidy from the federal government, and it's a, you know fa- politically favored. Everybody's talking it up, and there are all venture capitalists that have come into the market. But I actually think that the rate of innovation in the solar industry has been seriously slowed by the fact that they spent so much time uh, trying to get their subsidies uh, extended. And they've been doing this not just for a few years, for, but for many, many years. And they spend, their, their creative guys spend a lot of time in Washington lobbying rather than developing a business plan to, to make solar successful without government subsidies and mandates. So I, I really think that um, the way to, uh, you know, we could agree with the global warming alarmists that the world's energy supplies are going to change, uh, and they're not going to be dependent upon coal and oil forever. Uh, but the fact is that the way to get off of coal and oil is to let the market uh, provide incentives for innovation rather than have government decree that it's going to happen. Yeah, I guess I feel like that's too charitable to the alarmist uh, side, because you mentioned that they oppose, <laughs> I mean, uh, they oppose hydropower. I mean, which is, if, if if it was really serious that this is, you know, sort of a negative, an enormous, enormously destructive thing that's even worth considering sacrificing the best energy source, I mean, you would for sure look for 
what are the actual proven scalable sources that don't emit CO2? And the only one you have that's scalable fully is nuclear. And, and even that for transportation, you know, that's that doesn't exist uh, for cars and stuff like that. But then, you know, you have hydropower, which works well as far as it works, uh, when it can work, and they oppose that. So, I mean, I don't take seriously that this is a movement that, that values uh, energy whatsoever. That's a good point. I, I mean, you know, I I don't know the motive of all of my opponents, but I do know that the consequences of the policies that they promote are disaster. And uh, and so I think, uh, you know, I, I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt, but, uh, you know, you're probably right that most of the alarmists just essentially want to put us back to, uh, I don't know, 1800 or something. Uh, that, that people will just, I mean, there, this wonderful line in, in Britain when it became clear that uh, they're, they're, Britain has the most radical anti-energy policies of any country. And all three parties, I'm sure you know, are totally uh, bought into these policies. So there's no, the public doesn't support them, but all of the, the kind of intellectual elite in London support them. And that's what keeps them going. Well, when it became clear that uh, the that British policies were soon going to lead to rolling blackouts, which is rolling blackouts. It's what elected Margaret Thatcher in 1979 um, when the unions went after their own labor government. Uh, but one of the leading uh, people there said, well, well, we're going to have to adapt and start to use electricity when it's available. <laughs> now think about life when you don't have, when you when you have to decide, oh, it's 2 p.m. and the electricity isn't on now, or, or you're waiting for the wind to blow so that the lulls will come back on. I mean, I, this is this is the kind of thing that responsible uh, people, supposedly, supposedly responsible people, and and well-regarded experts in in England are talking about now. I mean, it's just it's you know it's insane. So, continuing with with the story of Europe, what's what's the current chapter? Uh, look like when I mean, you you have, you know, Europe is held up um, to the to people in the U.S. who have no at least those who have no familiarity with, uh, you know, what's actually happened, or it's it's held up by people who are simply lying about it. Uh, that you know this this is a model, and this that they're progressively implementing green energy, and yet they're progressively impoverishing themselves by green energy. What? sort of what's what's the next chapter because obama would have you believe that they're well on their way to solar and wind powering them uh to prosperity and for what i know the opposite is is true yes alex before i answer that let me answer uh, let me respond to the last thing you said president obama like many people supporting the new clean green energy economy keeps changing his story at one time, he was pointing to Spain as leading the way. And then, of course, the Spanish economy crashed and 20-some yeah. percent of the population are out of work. And the Spanish government has admitted they can't afford uh, any more windmills or solar panels. And then he started talking about Germany. And, well, Germany is, you know, moving uh, – they're, they're denuclearizing. They're closing down their nuclear plants, and so they're going back to coal. So he stopped talking about Germany. I mean, the, the success story keeps changing, but the fact is that, that – in every place that this has been tried in, in Europe and in California, it isn't working. And the current state of the current state of the emissions trading scheme, the cap and trade uh, system in Europe, is that in order to try to save the European commissioners 
proposed that an, a lot of the ration coupons be withdrawn from the market for a certain period of time. I forget when they would uh, uh, allegedly put them back into them or sell them, put them on the market, but they would withdraw a whole bunch now and that would uh, uh, float the market again so people would start having to buy the ration coupons and so the market would, would work. And the European Parliament, which has it's not like Congress or the House of Commons. It has very limited powers. But the one power it does have is it can um, it can say no to proposals by the European Commission. Now, normally it says yes, but occasionally it it says no. And on a, in a very narrow vote, the European Parliament told the European Commission, no, we're not going to do that. Now, I'm I'm the next step. I'm pretty sure the European Commission is going to come back. Some some arms are going to be twisted in the Parliament and. Uh, and it will go through, and they'll they'll try to save the the ETS. But uh, right now, it's everybody has even as you said, even the Washington Post, and I think that was their Earth Day editorial. So uh, it's quite remarkable what's happening here. Um, everybody right now says this isn't working, and uh, and so the first step or the first attempt to try to save the the cap and trade over there uh, has failed because the European Parliament wouldn't uh, support it, and. I, I think it's interesting some of the governments didn't uh, have an official line. Like the German government did not lean on the German members of the European Parliament to vote uh, to, to uh, prop up the cap and trade system. And so a lot of members voted, uh, you know, what they really thought and what, what their own voters were telling them rather than what the official pressure from their governments was. So that's a, I think that was an interesting kind of um, you know uh, litmus test on where public opinion really is in Europe. Uh, I, I think that'll, as I say, I think the European Commission will come back and they'll lean on the uh, the Parliament and they'll they'll try another rescue attempt. But that that's where we are right now. Um, since I really like the point about the uh, sort of kaleidoscope of success stories uh, in in Europe and how quickly they're changing. Because among other things, I think it shows how disingenuous and, and really religious uh, the supporters of this are. I mean, imagine you, know, you or I are looking at different policies or different technologies and we have a, you know, we have a suspicion, oh, this new form of, uh, of oil drilling is going to be really successful. And then it bombs. Well, we have an obligation as communicators and, and thinkers and students of, of the economy to actually report that. But to simply just deny that, or deny even worse, deny like look deny the failure, and then just say, "Oh, they're trying it in Wyoming. This is the way of the future." <laughs> it's just, I mean, I don't know what's going on in the people's heads, but it's it's just pure. Uh, I mean, it's it's pure dishonesty to not even acknowledge that. I mean, if they, it, it's it very much resembles the history of socialism, where it's always, uh, you know, my gang would do it better, but they. Unless prompted, they won't even talk about the previous gangs that killed 100 million people. Yes, well, I I agree. I, I you know I think that a large part of the left and 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 the environmental left is part of the the larger left uh, live in a sort of fantasy world of their own creation. And uh, you know I really do believe that President Obama. Uh, I don't think he's dishonest. I, I think he actually has so little connection to how the world works that, uh, and how the world of, of business and, and uh, commerce work that he, he actually believes that all wealth comes from government activity. 
And so uh, when the government says that we will have energy, and the one thing he keeps repeating is in all of his speeches is we need to take the actions to make clean energy the profitable kind of energy. Well, I'm sorry, but it's markets that determine whether you make profits or not. It's not government. Uh, and and the more government uh, interferes, the more the harder it becomes, uh, you know, for the economy to function at all, and for anybody to make profits. But I, he really does think that uh, we can we can just change the rules a little bit, and uh, these these uh, wonderful uh, very large donors to the Democratic Party who told him that you know technological breakthroughs are right around the corner. Uh, uh, that that will happen if government says it will happen. You know, cars will get 55 miles per gallon if government says so. Well, it is, in fact, cars can get 55 miles per gallon. They may cost so much and have be so small that nobody will want to buy them. But yes, there. You know, government can uh, wave its magic wand and command that. But I think that the uh, this was really summed up in uh, a, a Los Angeles Times uh, headline of uh, some years ago, which said that. Uh, new green energy um, is is on the horizon, and then the the subhead was, or, or, or it it was a little more positive than that. You know, it's it's gonna it's coming. It's it's inevitable. That it's coming. I can't quite remember how it said it. And the, but the subhead was it just depends on uh, a series of major technological breakthroughs. Uh, and I think you know President Obama thinks that government can mandate those breakthroughs. Yeah. It, it, um... I mean, it reminds me of the, the scene in Atlas Shrugged where, uh, where the government, in particular the character James Taggart, says to the leading industrialist, he gives them this completely bizarre, impossible plan and says, and the industrialist says, well, this is impossible. How could I possibly do this? And he says, oh, you'll do something. And it's this view that breakthroughs in innovation and success are not a matter of discovering what works, which is in fact what they are. It's a matter of dictating what works. So they they think that like what the coal industry is doing is somehow telling us to use coal versus yeah. finding a really efficient way of producing things. They say, oh, why can't we do that with these solar panels? Why can't it be super, super cheap to mine a bunch of stuff uh, from China, maybe get a bunch of workers killed, you know, and then get the most diffuse, unreliable sources of fuel? Why doesn't that work? Well, surely you guys can make it work. You made coal work as against you discovered how coal can produce power. Yes, that's right. And of course, there is some evidence that the government can make things happen. I mean, the, the Los Alamos and the creation of the atomic bomb is a is an example of that. Uh, and uh, many of the people on the other side, the kind of technological fantasists uh, among the global warming alarmists, continually talk. And this happens at every level, from scientists. Uh, down to or up to members of Congress, uh, we need a Manhattan project for clean, green energy in order to get off the coal, oil, and natural gas. Well, okay, it, we did it with the Los Alamos project, but it wasn't a very efficient use of resources. Uh, just for example, within about uh, they they made the they got the the fissionable materials, the uranium and the plutonium at two facilities. One was at Oak Ridge and the other was at Hanford uh, up in Washington State. But in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, within six months of, of starting it, they had this mammoth facility that went on for miles and miles. And it was using 
10% of all the electricity produced in this country. That was the level of, of resources that went into making uh, the first atomic bomb. Now, 10% of the electricity, let's see, how, how much is that going to cost? And moreover, how long will it take us to get all of the environmental permits and the environmental impact statements in order to undertake a Manhattan Project? We can't actually do that anymore. We have too many regulatory obstacles. Uh, even when government wants to do things, it can't do things. Even when private, big private companies want to build things, it takes them decades to get it permitted. So, yeah, okay, it, it may be possible if we put a huge amount of our resources into this and endure and command through a command and control economy run by the government. But uh, is it actually possible to divert 10% of the electricity in this country to some new project? I, I don't think so. Uh, if we were if we were back in a war, yes, but we're not. But yeah, that's uh, this. You know, Thomas Friedman is is one of the people who just repeats this uh, mantra endlessly, and, and to me, it just shows a complete lack of understanding uh, of of what economics is. Because what what do we mean when we say to work? I mean, to work means, uh, for instance, solar working doesn't mean that Apple could pay. Five billion dollars, uh, you know, a year to run a factory or something like that, in a way that would bankrupt them. I mean, you could imagine assembling enough solar panels and enough storage devices, where the thing would get continuous power. It would just be wildly, wildly uh, uneconomic. But that's of no use to someone. The only the, the war context is that it might be that in a given context to promote human life, the whole country needs to devote an effectively unlimited number of resources to a single, you know, to a single task. You can sort of afford to be uneconomic for one project. Same thing with the space shuttle. But the whole task of when we talk about energy is to provide affordable, reliable energy. It's not to do one spectacular feat independent of affordability and reliability. So it's just, it's in terms of working to promote human life, no, the government uh, can't do that. It can only get in the way. Yes, absolutely. And you know the uh, the kind of Friedmanite view of the world uh, is is so Thomas to, Thomas Friedmanite we should say yeah no, no, Thomas <laughs> the, the New York Times uh, uh, columnist who is one of the sort of dimmer bulbs on the in the uh, on the left um, the, the it's so inimical to the interests of people to think that you can just command. Uh, a much higher price form of energy and not understand that it will have consequences in the on the daily lives of people. Uh, poor people spend a much higher percentage of their incomes on energy and food than wealthy people. And so if you, a lot of people, uh, and Thomas Friedman, you know, who, uh, who married a very, had this huge house up in Montgomery County, <laughs> Most uh, north people of don't Washington, D.C., <laughs> yes. Well, he keeps talking about, and, and others on, on the left keep talking about, well, of course I'd, I'd be willing to pay $100 more a month for my electricity. Of course I'd be willing to pay more for cars. Of course I'd be willing to pay more for air travel. Sure, if you can afford it, that's easy. But if you're, if you're uh, trying to... Uh, 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 stay alive on a low income and you're trying to move up the economic ladder or get by on a pension, uh, this kind of talk is really dangerous. Uh, we're seeing this already, particularly in England and, well, in Britain, where fuel poverty, uh, the price of electricity and of heating 
has gone up so much that a lot of people now are are having a very hard time in the winter. And although it doesn't get that cold in England, uh, there's a lot of people now dying of cold in England, a lot more people dying of cold than of hot. And so, uh, it, and that's true throughout the world. More people die of cold uh, weather than they do from hot weather, even, even in hot countries like India, because in India, you have a lot of people who live on the street. And when they have these cold spells in the winter, uh, people who live on the street and don't have any clothing tend to die after a few days. So, uh, we have, we have a, we do have a problem and this kind of, uh, upper middle class uh, condescension about well of course uh, we we all us good uh, well meaning well intentioned people can, are willing to pay more for our energy. Well, go ahead guys, go ahead and do it. Uh, don't expect the rest of us who are on unlimited income to be able to do that. It's just not possible. Um, yeah, that's a really fascinating uh, statistic about. But India, in particular, the the hotter countries, and I, I don't even think most people who follow the debate and claim to be so interested in the impact of climate and weather on human life are aware that historically warmth is you know man's best friend, and that you know, the thing to fear is an ice age. And when we had an ice age, it was a uh, a big big problem. Why do you think that that kind of information is just so little known, given that it's supposedly such a concern? Uh, you know, the the danger or safety of the climate is supposedly such a large concern. Uh, well, it's well known in the literature that roughly ten times as many people die of cold as die of hot, uh, but or heat die of heat. I guess it's more idiomatic. But um, th- if you're only interested in pushing the global warming alarmist line, those kinds of statistics are, you know, not relevant to your argument. So they just don't get talked about. I do think it, it's, uh, it's the case that most people, I, I think that there's a very strong uh, divide between the bulk of the American people, and I think this is true in Europe as well, and what I would call in this country the bicoastal urban elite. Uh, people who live in uh, uh, New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland and Washington D.C. and Boston. Uh, they uh, most of them now, uh, most of the upper income people make their money from manipulating information on a screen, uh, financial instruments or or media or whatever. But they they don't actually have much connection with the material world. And I think if you look at the people in kind of the heartland states or, or rural communities uh, and small towns who dig up stuff, make stuff, and grow stuff for a living, there is a, a very strong skepticism about the claims of global warming and about uh, and about its catastrophes. And similarly, uh, I think you can just see from the demographic data that, that people prefer warmth. Uh, since air conditioning was invented, uh, Every census shows that the states that aren't growing are North Dakota and Michigan and New York and Massachusetts, and the states that are growing are Arizona and Texas and Florida and Southern California. And uh, that's because air conditioning is able to be quite comfortable in the in the really hot summer months and to and to have a very pleasant life year-round because it never gets that cold in Florida in the winter. And that's obviously much healthier. People live longer. Elderly people do much better in warm weather. Similarly, in Europe, since the advent of cheap air flights, 
everybody in Northern Europe flocks to you know the Spanish coast and uh, the, the Riviera every every summer. That's that's you know millions of people migrate to try to find some warmth. Um, and so I I don't I think that there is a strong a disconnect between what people know in their daily lives and a kind of this propaganda that somehow uh, global warming is going to ruin life in Norway and um, you know uh, Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just want to just anyone listening, I would I would really urge you to to just consider uh, what Myron just said because it's it is a really bad thinking error to make to not bring in one's common sense and life experience when processing these claims. I mean, one thing I that someone even pointed out to me just a year ago, and I've been studying this a long time, and I never thought about it. He said, you know, you in the U.S. are the masters of, of climate change, because look, you can live in Alaska, you can live in Florida, you can live in Arizona, you can live in Southern California, and anywhere you live, you have a life expectancy of 80. And, and we experience that on a daily basis, and yet we hear about Oh my gosh! There's a one degree Celsius uh, temperature change in the you know in the global mean temperature anomaly over the last 150 years. That's the thing in life to be afraid of. And at the same time, you know, I'm happy to text while driving all sorts of other truly dangerous things. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I just had one more point to this, which is maybe somewhat more controversial. But I think that people who are involved in, in uh, uh, lives that involve growing stuff, making stuff, and digging stuff up, are much less susceptible to propaganda than people who live in front of a computer screen and are constantly bombarded by information. Uh, I, think, I think that, um, in general, uh, it's, it's much easier to manipulate intellectuals with propaganda than it is folks who have some connection to the material world that they see the weather every day, for example, just on this issue, they see the weather every day and they know that, uh, you know, uh, some days it's really nasty and some days it's really nice. And, uh, and you can't, uh, you can't generalize from that to some theory that the, that the we're destroying the planet by making everything hot. I, and so I, I think that, um, there's a lot, as you say, common sense needs to be, um, uh, you, you you need always to kind of try to uh, take these big claims and, and work them out, how they work out in your daily life. But I think it's much easier for people who are in, uh, deeply involved in the material world to resist those kinds of claims. I think they're just naturally more hardier or more resistant. I, I like what you just said about intellectuals being more prone to manipulation because that's something they would never suspect and yet, and yet it's, and, and, but that's part of the handicap is that there's not yeah. the self-awareness that they are vulnerable to propaganda. So if some member of the establishment or even just some follower of the establishment who doesn't even know there's an establishment reads the New York Times every day and, well, of course, it's just common sense that, quote, we need to do something uh, about global warming and is, and is oblivious uh, versus someone who might be a more... Uh, you know, more critical thinker because he's on the premise, well, I don't really understand this, so maybe I need to think about it and, and uh, see how it maps to my own experiences. Yes, and it might also be the case that uh, people who don't go out, have to go outdoors before the sun comes up to go, you know, get to work or start working on the farm and milking the cows or feeding the pigs or something, they don't 
really understand, for example, how cold it's been this spring. This is in North America. This is the one of the coldest springs in the temperature record, which goes back to the 1870s or 1880s. And it's you know we're still having snowstorms and sub-zero weather in in the upper Midwest and way, even way down into the Midwest, uh, way south uh, this year. So. Uh, Washington, D.C. has been miserable all spring. We haven't had any nice weather at all. Now, I'm not saying that's an indication that global warming isn't true, but I but I would say that most people can figure out that um, there, it sure isn't evidence that, 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 that there's global warming. In fact, when they started to have a lot of snow in uh, Europe this winter, a whole bunch of the alarmist scientists came forward and said, oh, well, you know, more snow is what you've got to expect with global warming. Whereas 10 years ago, they were all saying the, the age of snow is over. Our children won't even know what snow is in northern Europe. Well, you know, they're having just unbelievable amounts of it this winter and, and even late into the spring in northern Europe. And now they're saying, well, it's, it's just what you'd expect. It's a theory that can't be falsified because everything confirms it. So... Uh, it's it's a kind of a it's a wonderful uh, thing to be a global warming alarmist. Whatever happens, you can say, oh yes, we knew that would happen. That's just exactly what we we, we even though they they weren't expecting it ten years ago. Yeah, I mean it's a very convenient combination of dogma and lack of definition. So you've got it's yeah, absolutely yeah, true that capitalism yeah. is ruining the world, and it's in the form of climate change, which happens to be a constant in life. Yes. So, um, really quick. Well, actually, uh, let's let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about um, sort of something that I know Competitive Enterprise Institute has has been involved in and, and has been been a big issue, uh, you know, both on the left and the right recently, which is uh, what they call the carbon tax, which I find a very annoying term, given that it's carbon dioxide, and there is a there is an important difference. Also, the idea that a carbon tax would be desirable, given that carbon is the basic ingredient of life, is also annoying. But in any case, the so-called carbon tax is now the hot issue and is viewed as, well, this is somehow going to bring us a better environment and a better economy. What's What's been the arc of this of this issue? You know, a, a cap, the cap-and-trade system was proposed in the United States first by Senator John McCain in about 2001, and it was finally defeated in uh, 2009 and 10. It took it took 10 years, really. Uh, it took a decade to defeat cap-and-trade, and we did it uh, through persistence uh, and and staying after the issue and continually. Uh, engaging uh, and disputing the claims of of uh, people like Senator McCain that were pushing cap and trade, and the the, the key uh, moment came when someone coined the term, and it was I was in the meeting, and I can't remember who it was. We should call it cap and tax, and it took a number of years for that to get into the into the media, but once it became mainstream that everybody was calling it cap and tax, we knew that we could kill it, and and we did. And it, it took a lot of work, and a lot of people were involved, and a lot of people can take credit. Uh, now, of course, they're not even uh, and cap and ta cap and trade was a sneaky way of of taxing people, right? We're by not calling it a tax, we're assuming most people would assume that it's it's big companies that have to pay for it, not them, not them as consumers. Now they're they're going straight out and saying let's have a straight carbon tax, and they're not even concealing the fact that it's a tax. 
uh, it can't possibly pass in a vote in either the House or the Senate. And the Senate is Democratic and the House is Republican. Neither chamber will vote for it. Here's where it's possible. Uh, they keep talking at both the uh, Obama, uh, President Obama and uh, leaders in the House and the Senate keep talking about two big deals, a big budget deal that would sort of solve all of our problems and reform entitlements or a big tax reform, comprehensive tax reform. And either one of those could include and the reason is, first of all, these big deals are negotiated in secret. Uh, the American people won't know that a carbon tax is in there until it comes until it's announced that we're going to have a vote tomorrow. And secondly, uh, it once it's part of a big deal, why why is it why would it be part of a big deal? Why is it hard for uh, members of Congress to resist it even though they wouldn't vote for it in a straight vote? It's because it raises so much money. And what do they want here in Washington? Lots more of your money. So. Big, uh, there, it, it's, it's, there's an overwhelming attraction to a carbon tax as part of a bigger deal. Because when it comes to the floor, there won't be a vote on that one specific provision. There will just be an up or down vote on the whole package. And so members of the House and the Senate can say, oh, of course I was opposed to a carbon tax. But I had to vote for the whole package because that's what saved the economy or that's what reformed entitlements or that's what reformed our tax code. And, and that was more important, so I had to give up. So there will be nobody who actually supports the carbon tax, but somehow it will get in there. And that's uh, that's the danger of a carbon tax. And so that's why... Uh, uh, People who are uh, concerned about the cost of living and the cost of taxation uh, should be very vigilant and should be, you know, watching their uh, uh, congressmen and their two senators like hawks and reminding them every day that they shouldn't. Uh, don't you dare put a carbon tax into some big deal and then pretend that you didn't have anything to do with it and, it's, and you're actually against it. It, it seems like. The cap and tax story is interesting. It seems like one aspect, there's a parallel here where carbon tax, because I don't think anyone knows what carbon is, it seems like a tax on something fairly uh, remote. And, right. And, and it might not be you. Versus what it actually is, in many senses, is a life tax. Because carbon is the basic ingredient of life. Carbon dioxide is the basic food of plants. And you know, cheap, reliable energy is how modern life is is sustained. Um but I guess off of that, I had an interesting experience that relates to the issue of how much this tax is supposed to be because they're generally very uh, vague about it. And actually, I was debating uh, the head of Beyond Coal for the Sierra Club, and someone in the audience asked him, well, how much would my gasoline cost? And, you know, give me a, give me a number. And guess what? The guy refused to give a number at all. And I, <laughs> I pushed him and I said, well, what? You know, Bruce, I'd really like a number. I think that would be helpful for him to illustrate what it would mean for their life instead of talking vaguely about a carbon tax, which seems like, oh, it's going to be like 10 cents on a soda or that, that kind of equivalent. And he said, well, mm -hmm. like he would not give uh, a number. And yet the number that they do give is the purpose of the carbon tax is to reduce CO2 emissions by 80% over the years. <laughs> Does anyone talk about what the actual number would be? Yeah. Yes, we, we try to get that out there. I mean, just very briefly, 80% uh, of the, our energy in the United States and 80% globally, and it's a little more than that, but let's just say 80%, comes from burning coal, oil, and natural gas. And those that's the cheaper 80%. The other 20% is, is mostly more expensive. So 
and coal in particular is extremely inexpensive and it's it's but it's very carbon intensive that is when you burn coal you produce it has a lot of carbon in it and you get a lot of carbon dioxide so if you burn a ton of coal you're going to get more than 2 tons of carbon dioxide so let's have a $20 a ton tax on carbon dioxide emissions for every ton of carbon dioxide there's a tax of $20. Now, that's where they want to start. They want to raise it by 4 or 5-6% every year. So pretty soon it will become a lot more. But let's start year one, we got $20. That will raise over $100 billion in new taxes in this country. That will come directly out of the pockets of American consumers who are paying more for energy or for anything that depends on energy. All, every, everything we do, even services, use energy. And so even the internet uses a huge amount of energy. So we're all going to be paying $100, $100 billion more a year into the federal treasury from day one, from year one. And that will rapidly increase under these, uh, the proposals that are being talked about. Now, how much is that? Well, $20 a ton works out almost exactly to 20 cents more per gallon of gasoline. Uh, coal, which is now selling for uh, not much at all. I mean, I think uh, Wyoming coal is like around $12 a ton. You're going to be adding 40 to $50 to that ton of coal. So you're you're going to be uh, and and eastern coal maybe it's selling for 30 $40 a ton. So you're going to be at least doubling the price of coal. And so if you if you look at our uh, electric people are already paying a lot for electricity. People who live in California and New England uh, in New York, they're paying a lot. But in the heartland states, still have a lot of coal-fired uh, electric, electric power plants. Uh, Indiana, Ohio, uh, this, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, Pennsylvania. Uh, these states are, are manufacturing heartland. So if you double the price of coal, you are going to put manufacturers out of business because there's no longer any heavy manufacturing in California or New England or New York. It's all concentrated in the coal states. And that's, uh, that's one of the, would be the first thing that would happen. Coal would uh, go up uh, by a huge percentage. That wouldn't hurt people in California. They're already paying twice as much for electricity to be people in, um, in, as, uh, in Kentucky. But would, uh, the manufacturing would start to disappear uh, very rapidly. Uh, yeah, I think the point about the indirect costs is is so important because I mean energy is the fundamental industry, which means that when energy is cheaper, every other industry is more efficient, and uh, when it's more expensive, every industry is is um, less efficient, and and things cost more. So I don't. I sometimes think these projections, they we can't know the full destructiveness right. of something right. like this. That's absolutely right. Um, so what, um, at this point in terms of, you mentioned the success in opposing cap and trade, which just that alone, uh, saved us a lot. I mean, that, that improved every person's life in America, literally. Uh, what would you recommend doing for this, for the so-called carbon tax? Uh, I, I think that, um, it's going to have to be made, uh, politically impossible so that the guys, uh, who are in the secret negotiations, the people on the Ways and Means Committee in the House and the Finance Committee in the Senate can't touch it. It becomes untouchable because we don't have any, there's no direct way to impact them uh, once they start putting together a big tax reform uh, 
package or a comprehensive deal on the budget, which would, uh, you know, uh, raise revenues, cut spending, reform entitlements. That kind of big package will, there will be very little direct pressure that can be brought to bear on those people. People like the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Baucus. Now, he's, he was up for re-election in 2014, and he always tended to be more conservative and vote more like a Republican uh, in the two years right before his election, and which is why he's managed to serve for 30 years in the Senate. But now he's going to retire, so he no longer has any political – there's no way to bring political pressure on him. Uh, he can do what he wants because he's, he's not running again. So it's going to be very hard to get at these guys. Uh, and we have to we have to work ahead of time to make the carbon tax politically toxic so no one will touch it. So so uh, it, it's a big job, and but everybody needs to to just tell their elected officials, particularly their members of Congress, you know, don't you dare, don't you dare give us another tax on on uh, you know essentially on human life on consumption, uh, energy energy as you said it's everything. And uh, so just don't you dare and just keep telling them that over and over. And no matter how much they protest that they're not in favor of it, you know, get them to swear that they won't vote for anything that has a carbon tax in it. And that will be the way to stop it. And, you know, the federal government does not need more revenues. It needs less spending. Uh, and so uh, we, sh- we shouldn't be supporting any uh, any efforts to add any more revenues uh, to the federal government. And, and a carbon tax is uh, just one of the possibilities. But it, of all the ones on the table, it's the only one that would raise a huge amount of money, and that's why it's uh, in play. Well, until our money became valueless. Well, yes, and, and we're we're working on that. Yeah, from uh, from from many angles, unfortunately. So, so everyone, uh, I think, just take note of what Myron said about um, contacting you know political officials. I think sometimes in the days in the day of the internet, that can be really underrated, but but they do listen because you do control whether they are in or out of office. Yes, but you, but you can't sort of believe what they say. You have to keep pushing them because they'll they'll say, you know, reassuring things that don't actually pin them down, pin themselves down. So you have to you have to keep pushing and say, "Yes, you say that you're opposed to it, but will you promise to vote against any measure that has a carbon tax in it?" And that's when you find out you know who, and you make sure you get that on tape. By the way, if they're if you're talking to them in person, because you need to be able to you know put that up on the internet so that they're they're pinned down and they can't say I was misunderstood or something. Well, maybe I'll start I'll start issuing invitations to Power Hour to all these guys and see if yeah. see if we yeah. can't uh, uh, <laughs> record them. Anyway, Myron, uh, thanks so much uh, for being on the show. Where can people find you uh, and and your work on the internet? Uh, the best place is um, not the CEI website, which is cei.org, but our our climate and energy website, which is globalwarming.org, globalwarming.org. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show, and we'll be in touch. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. Uh, thanks to Myra E. Bell again for being on the show. It's really interesting show. I think particularly toward the end, there are a lot of points that are worth uh, re-listening to. I think he, he's got a, you know, he's got a, a good uh, historical and global perspective on energy. 
I pretty much got across uh, my thoughts on the issue during the show, so uh, I'm not going to have much of a wrap-up today. I'll just say one thing with these issues. I haven't promoted it in a while. I really recommend that everyone go to facebook.com slash ilovefossilfuels and get involved with that page. We're going to be doing a lot with it in the coming weeks and months. We're going to be uh, going head-to-head with the so-called divestment campaign led by 350.org, and, which means uh, Bill McKibben, whom I'm sure everyone is familiar with, most of you are familiar with, and we're really going to make I Love Fossil Fuels a big presence on on campus. Now, one, one other aspect of that, if you go to our website now, we are offering the book, uh, my book, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, uh, for mass distribution. This is going to be, it's a small book, and it's meant to be handed out, it's meant to, meant to be distributed, uh, which is, you know, a very, very powerful means of spreading ideas. So right now, you can buy them for your own distribution. Eventually, we'll allow you to buy them for distribution to college students and other groups, and I'm hoping we can get thousands and thousands of these things out, because in our experience, it makes a really big positive difference. So check out industrialprogress.com for more on that, and facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels. And... Well, that's it for the week, although I should say, as always, if you have questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.